You're listening to A Scary State, and this week we're covering urban legends. So Lauren? Yes, Nora? Let's get scary. Hi! (laughs) Hi, everyone! (laughs) So I guess we can um, set the mood for you guys. We're currently drinking hot apple cider. It's actually starting to get, like, kind of-ish. It was 70 today, but it was, like, 50 degrees last night when I went on, like, the haunted walk thing. I just hate how I'm wearing short sleeves in October. I know. I want to be cold. I know. And, you know, it's like thinking back to when I was little, it was not this warm. No, it never was. Global warming's real. Yep. So you went on a haunted walk last night? Yeah. So it was at like this local place. I would go in high school and I forgot that like the only people that go are high schoolers. So me, my mom and sister show up (laughs) and I literally got the worst PTSD thinking about seeing all the high school girls. And then my fight or flight happened and they started walking towards me and I was like, don't come near. <laughs> Did they talk to you? Did you have to say hi? No, they were, they were just everywhere, like crawling around everywhere, <laughs> oh these high God. schoolers. High schoolers seriously scared the shit out of me. I'm terrified of them. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. And like the things that they say, I'm like, were we like this? No. I couldn't believe it. Because we didn't have TikTok and we didn't have all of those I know, things. I know. Yeah. Yeah, so it was it was very fun, but I will say it was overrun by high schoolers and I wanted to like run away. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> I feel like I just haven't done anything Halloween this year. Like so obviously we've talked about it. I got married at the beginning of the month. So every focus was on that. Like our house isn't even decorated for Halloween yet. Which is shocking. I love it. Yeah. So that's why I don't know how it's not decorated yet. You know, you had to decorate for a whole wedding, so you got to shift that your priorities true. sometimes. I know. And we have a box of all of our Halloween stuff up in our attic. Yeah. And I just keep looking at it. And I'm like, is today the day we're going to decorate? It hasn't happened yet. In that haunted room? Yes. In our haunted room where I think a person lives. Oh, gosh. I have no reason to think that. It's just scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's called, what's it called? Crime Junkie says it's called being like para-prepared, like oh. paranoid, but prepared. I don't think that's exactly what it's called, but oh, I'm I like, like that, that. It, that describes me to a T. I like that. <laughs> like I will be walking in a parking lot at night and I'll have like the keys in between my fingers, like ready to attack. Oh yeah. I parked a little bit further from your house today. Cause there was only one parking spot and I'm like, Oh man, this is going to be a long walk tonight. Uh, wait, and like there spray. was a parking spot though out front. Mm-hmm. You should have just parked there. Well, not out front of you, like down. Oh, a bit. oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I had to park there. Okay. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be a long walk, <laughs> but someone had their freaking trash can in okay. one of the spots. It makes me so mad. I told Ian, I was like, you know, one day if we have kids and I'm like nine months pregnant, I am like, if someone has a trash can (laughs) in the spot, I will move that trash can so fast. And if they fight me, they will be fighting a pregnant woman. And I don't know, like I just, again, preparing for like confrontation. I'm like, because people do that. There's no assigned parking. So people just park like anywhere. Which is good, but also bad because then you have people who try to put trash cans. I mean, if there wasn't a spot next to it, because there was an open spot next to it, so I just parked in that one. But mm-hmm. if there wasn't, I would have moved the trash can. Yeah. I have no time. Good. And you don't live here, so you don't have to Oh, yeah, and I people, don't live here. So. And I can't parallel park, so I don't have any other option. Ugh, yeah. It so it's like... either move the trash can or there's no other options. So. Exactly. All right. So you want to tell us a little bit about urban legends? I would love to can't wait. So, so urban legends are defined as a humorous or horrific story or piece of information circulated as true, especially when purporting to involve someone vaguely related or known to the teller. 
So usually these legends are stories that are believable or relatable and usually involve an unexpected twist, but one that is just plausible enough to be true. So ones that, you know, you think it's real. Mm -hmm. Every culture and every generation has these legends and tales that have passed on from one person to another. Over time, these tales change and evolve and become more relevant to the present. But others start off pretty believable and only evolve and get more and more unbelievable with each retelling. Mm. Some are popular and well-known urban legends like the alligators in the sewer, Halloween candy being laced with drugs, or the clown statue. There's also the movie Urban Legends, which plays on all of the popular urban legends, like The Roommate, Don't Turn on the Lights, The Backseat Killer, Flashing Headlights, kind of Mm -hmm. all those things. So today, Nora and I looked into some different urban legends. We did. So what do you have for us, Nora? So before I start getting into my first urban legend, I need to take us all back in time to right after the Salem Witch Trial in Salem, Massachusetts. Okay. So immediately after the Salem Witch Trials of 1692 to 93, New Englanders viewed the trials as a shocking case of government government run amok. Amok, amok, amok. I just watched Hocus Pocus last night. It's so good. <laughs> um, overall, just an embarrassment. Yeah. Which, did you know that they felt that way? I thought that Honestly, it was just no. like a thing. Well, I, it makes sense. It does. I mean, I would feel embarrassed if my town did that. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess it makes sense now because people are like, you know, now we kind of understand how bad that was. Exactly. But I always assumed it was like a norm that they didn't know any better, but apparently they were very not happy about what happened there. Okay. So after the 20 alleged witches were executed in Salem, no one was ever again indicted, convicted, or executed of witchcraft in New England. Dang. So they put a quick stop to it after yeah, that. Because they had all the mayhem of that. Exactly. And probably tons of people like judging the crap out of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The Salem witch trials happened in part because of the Puritan practice of mutual watch. So this is like basically an idea of the ideal city on a hill required vigilance by pastors and by lay people to prevent one sinner from infecting the whole community. So parishioners kept an eye on the moral behavior of their neighbors. That's very interesting. Yeah. So snooping on the neighbors was easy in early Puritan towns because, I mean, what else are people doing back then? Exactly. (laughs) They consisted of 150 people crowded into small houses in that area around a common, and townspeople interacted with each other constantly. Mm. But by the early 19th century, New Englanders multiplied and moved away from the town centers. The practice of mutual watch, possibly in a town of 150 people, was impossible in a town of 1,000. Mm-hmm. Monroe, Connecticut, had over a thousand inhabitants during the lifetime of one woman in particular named Hannah Crana. Okay. So Hannah Crana was born in 1783 in Monroe, Connecticut, um, about a hundred years after the Salem witch trials. She married a man named Captain Joseph Hovey. It's believed he was likely much older than she was, and the couple never had children. Joseph came up with her nickname, Hannah Karina. Her real name was Hannah Hovey. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, what an yeah. interesting person last name. I know. She took her husband's name, but for some reason, he gave her that nickname. Hannah lived a pretty normal life until one day her husband died suspiciously. Mm. Yeah. It was nighttime, and he had gone out for a walk and fell over a cliff in an area he knew well. The townspeople of Monroe tried to make sense of Joseph's mysterious death and came up with the theory that Hannah had cast a spell that confused Joseph enough to wander into abyss. Mm. From then on, she carried the nickname Wicked Witch of Monroe. Yeah, it's kind of a nice nickname. If it doesn't, you know, having what it applies is not great, but now it's a kind of cool nickname. Yeah. 
Hannah never remarried, but lived alone with her chickens on her property. Oh. Which, did you know that chickens majorly attract rats? No. It's, my coworker told me this because his neighbor has chickens and he's like really worried about the rat issue that they cause. Oh my so God. now whenever someone has chickens, I'm like, I hope they don't have rats. I think I told you that one time I was watching a house and for the people, they were out and they literally had like chickens in their house, like baby chickens, uh, chicks, whatever, like with like the heating lamps and everything. But uh, I was like, hmm, that's very interesting. That's kind of cute when they're little. They were cute. Yeah. But, you and know, then it's like, it okay, a, no more. Interesting place. <laughs> so her house was supposedly guarded by snakes as well. By snakes? Yes. Okay. She wore Black Widow's weeds and got along well with some of her neighbors. But like most people accused of witchcraft, Hannah Karana had a difficult temperament and was often called a shrew, and there were a handful of neighbors she did not get along with. Of course. A big reason for being disliked by some neighbors is that Hannah demanded favors of them, such as pretty much forcing them to give her food and firewood. (laughs) Okay, I was on her side, but now that's kind of bad. It's so bad, but it's so funny. Like, she's... (laughs) I mean, she has all this power. Like, I'll curse you if you don't yeah, give me what exactly. I need. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. She, like, uses it. She's like, okay, if you guys are going to do this to me, then I'm going to scare you. I mean, she's stepping into it. Yeah. So, you know. Um, and she would give very little in return. Then when bad things happened to neighbors who refused her a favor, townspeople gossiped that Hannah Karana had practiced her witchcraft on them and that she'd frequently cast spells on people she didn't like. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this time was it's so bad. It's such petty gossip. It like, really it's is. It's so petty. Now, if Hannah were born 100 years earlier, she would have been sent to Salem probably for her behavior Mm -hmm. and then executed. Oh, yeah. But this was a time period where witches were no longer being killed and the trials were an embarrassment, like I said. Mm -hmm. So Hannah was able to practice her witchcraft, as her neighbors called it, without any repercussions. (laughs) Okay, I mean, good for her doing her thing. (laughs) So here are urban legends about Hannah Crana that people believe prove she was a witch. Okay. A neighbor, renowned for her baking skills, made a number of pies. Hannah Karana came by as they cooled and asked for one. (laughs) The neighbor gave her the smallest. She asked for a larger pie, but the neighbor refused. Of course, Hannah would want a bigger one. Yeah, I mean, she's kind of, literally, beggars can't be choosers. I know. Hannah Karana then put a spell on her, and the neighbor's pies were never as good as they had been. (laughs) (laughs) I know. According to another tale, a young man trespassed on her property to fish for trout in her brook. She caught him, cursed him, and he never caught another fish again. Oh my god. (laughs) In a third tale, two men driving an ox cart full of hay stopped in front of her house to mock her. Hannah Crana bewitched the oxen in the cart, and the oxen stopped moving, and the wheels fell off the cart. Okay, I mean, I can kind of get behind that one. Yeah. One day in 1859, Hannah Karana's pet rooster, Old Boreas, died. Oh, Boreas! Oh my god! <laughs> Some suspected that Old Boreas was her familiar, which means that mm. it was an animal guide. Um, and it it's like something that helps witches with their magic. Yeah. Hannah Karana told a neighbor she would die soon. She <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> she was so just like Yeah. Uh, She said she wanted her coffin carried to her grave by foot, not by wagon. And she said she must not be buried before sundown. She did die soon after giving those instructions, and her neighbor ignored the instructions. Yeah. It was snowing heavily, so instead of carrying her casket by foot, they carried her over the snowy ground by sled until her coffin slid off. (gasps) Which is, like, pretty disrespectful. Oh, no. 
They tried again, and the coffin slid off again. Finally, they gave up and carried her to her grave by hand, just as Hannah had wanted. But by then, the sun had set. Hannah specifically said she didn't want to be buried after sunset. Mm -hmm. The funeral party buried her and then returned to Hannah Karana's home, only to find it engulfed in flames. (gasps) Oh, no! (laughs) For for them, this pretty much sealed the legend that Hannah Karana was a witch. (laughs) I mean, you know. Some things, kind of. (laughs) Today, you can visit her real grave in Trumbull, Connecticut, and there are photos online of her tombstone and gravesite located in Gregory's Four Corners Burial Ground, which is right next to the town of Monroe. Mm -hmm. And according to modern legend, a spectacle figure sometimes appears in the graveyard and causes passing cars to swerve, lose control of their car, and crash into her grave area. Isn't that crazy? That's so gross. (laughs) Not gross, but I hate that so much. I (laughs) know. All right, Lauren, so what are you going to talk about? All right, so first off, this apple cider is delicious. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) All right. So some urban legends actually inspire horror movies, one of those being The Candyman. So The Candyman's legend isn't always the same. The movie portrays his origin one way, while a book, The Forbidden, written by Clave Barker, portrays it one other way. In Barker's book, The Forbidden, written in 1985, The Candyman is a white man with a pale face and blonde hair who wears a patchwork outfit. This version of the legend takes place in Liverpool, England, and centers around a woman named Helen. So Helen's studying the graffiti around the town in order to get more information and research for her thesis paper. She befriends a woman and eventually comes upon a house that she believes will truly help her with her research. As she walks into the house, she sees a painting. One of a man with yellow, jaundiced skin, red eyes, sharp teeth, and patchwork clothing. Helen soon becomes obsessed with this candy man and many murders that took place in the surrounding area. Murders that were committed with either a hook or a razor blade. She soon notices that she is being followed by this man in a patchwork outfit. But I won't go any more into it because mm-hmm. we don't get background of this candy man in the book, The Forbidden. I don't want to know what happened. And I've never seen this movie either, so I don't know how similar I it is to the either. book. I was going to, but then it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So the same year that this book was published, there were recorded 11 murders and 37 murders by gunfire in Chicago's Cabrini Green housing projects. All of these murders occurred in a span of only three months. The violent and racist environment in Chicago's inner city and the violence, segregation laws, slavery, and racism that were experienced here and Barker's book combined to help inspire the story used in the Candyman movie. Mm -hmm. So the original Candyman film, which came out in 1992, so not the newest one, received a 6.6 on IMDb and a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not awful. Not Not, great. (laughs) Joe says that anything above a 6.8 on IMDb is considered good. So we're close to the 6. He loves IMDb. We watched a movie the other day. It was actually really good. It was called Last Shift, and it had a 5.8 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. It was like kind of weird, but the ending made it really, really good. Really? Yeah, so watch it. But Joe freaking fell asleep, so I'm watching a scary movie all by myself, but it was pretty good. I have a thing during movies where I will look up like... I get so invested in the character. I'm like, what are they? What are their names in real life? And then I look them up on IMDb, like during the movie, and I'm like, wait, I'm not even watching the movie anymore. <laughs> I have to like put down my phone. But yeah, it was a good movie. I'd recommend it. It's really? really good Halloween time. Okay, wait, what's it called again? Last Shift. Last Shift. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. It's it's interesting. So the legend in the movie revolves around a former slave named Daniel Robitaille. Robitaille was living in the housing projects of Cabrini Green in Chicago. See the similarity there? Mm -hmm. He was a shoe manufacturer at first and was very successful. He then soon became a painter and was noticed for how good he was. He was commissioned to paint a portrait of Caroline Sullivan, a white woman. Well, the two fell in love and Caroline soon became pregnant. Hmm. So a few issues with this is that a white woman had fallen in love with a former slave. Mm -hmm. And even more so, she got pregnant out of wedlock. So just... 
you know, the time, just not good for the time. Of course, this enraged the community, and a white mob soon formed to get Rabatali. 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 It's like, why do they care so much, though? I, because it I was the time. That. I know. It's you know, just, it's so just horrible. So they cut off his right hand, smeared it with honey, then let a swarm of bees sting the poor man to death. No. Rabatali came back as a vengeful spirit, obviously, and vowed that whomever said his name in a mirror five times would suffer a horrible fate. He would appear behind them in the mirror, and with a hook fastened to his hand, he would swipe at the person, killing them. If you should doubt his existence, you still aren't safe. That will make him come for you, too. So how did the writers come up with the idea that the Candyman appears out of the mirror to attack his victims? Well, on April 22, 1987, a call was made to 911 by a woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy. McCoy claimed that someone was trying to get into her home through her bathroom mirror. McCoy was known to have a mental illness, which I think is why it took the cops two days to respond to her call. Mm. McCoy's neighbors even reported hearing gunshots, but the cops still took two days to show up to her house. When they finally got inside, they found McCoy dead in her bathroom. She had been shot to death, and there was a hole in her bathroom wall. (gasps) Hell no! (sighs) (sighs) So since the release of the movie, people have thought of the Candyman as an actual urban legend, one that needs to be tested in a dark bathroom, very Mm -hmm. similar to the legend of Bloody Mary. Though we all know it's from a movie, what would happen if you walked into a bathroom and said Candyman five times? I don't want to know. I do not either. So that's the legend of the Candyman. Wow, that was good. I know, that one was creepy. Yeah. And I really want to watch the movie. I was supposed to go see it in theaters recently because theaters are like open again. Mm-hmm. But we ended up not going, so I still have oh. not seen it. But I want to, and it's like an, the older version too I want to see. Yeah. Because I think the newer one was done by Jordan Peele. Ooh, yeah. really? I think I could be wrong, but I think he's the one who directed this one. Oh, and he's you just, know it's going to be good. He's just great. Mm-hmm. So I want to see and the old one and then see the new one to see, like, you know, how they compare. Yeah, compare it. Yeah, that's right. always good. What do you have, Nora? We're going to talk about Homie the Clown. Okay. Have you heard of Homie? I have not. He's not a homie like a friend. He's oh like my God. <laughs> he's like a homie you want to avoid. You're the worst. <laughs> Throughout the suburbs of Chicago, Ooh, in, Chicago. Yeah, exactly. in the fall of 1991, there was a rumor going around elementary schools. There was a creepy man dressed as Homie the Clown from Living in Color, which was a sketch comedy show in the 90s. In this show, Homie the Clown was an ex-con turned silly clown that went around smacking misbehaving kids with a sock. <laughs> God, like an empty sock, or did the sock have stuff in it? It was just like an empty sock, so I don't think it hurt. What the heck? Yeah, kids inevitably saw the show, and in the Chicago area, elementary school kids in particular were totally freaked out and started seeing things. (laughs) (laughs) According to some reports, children saw a man or even men in clown outfits trying to lure kids into a white, blue, brown, or black van. I don't like that at all. I know. And can I just say, like, imagine being the detective and getting that description of the van. Yeah. I would quit right then and there. I'd be like, you can't even give me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the van did have one unique characteristic. Apparently, it had the words ha ha printed across the door. Oh, my God. The clown in the van reportedly tried to lure kids into it with candy and with money also. Gross. Yeah. In some variations, he was a kidnapper. In others, he was a rapist. Mm. But in all variations, Homie left a mark on young Chicago kids in the 90s. Even though the story seemed made up and the depiction of the clown was literally copied from the TV show, Mm -hmm. police still investigated and obviously found nothing to substantiate the sightings. Yeah. 
In a news article that a man named Isaiah Thompson wrote, he said, quote, I was in fifth grade at Murphy Elementary and rumors circulated among, among my classmates, end quote. Isaiah goes on to say that another one of his classmates, Bob Chang, recounts, quote, he was supposed to be driving around in a van. Kids were talking about it at the time. A kid in my church, he went to another school in Chicago further north, and he saw Homie the Clown going by his school, end quote. I don't like that. I don't either. Chang vividly recalls a witch hunt mentality. He says, I remember one day a bunch of kids in the neighborhood and me were like, we're going to catch this guy. And we went walking the neighborhood looking for Homie. Big bad fifth graders. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> we're going to protect the town. I know. Even. If no one believes us, we'll show them. Oh. <laughs> Isaiah continues by saying that the more people you ask, provided they're of a certain age, the more you'll hear the same things with slight variations. Sometimes homie is a kidnapper, other times a rapist. Others remember his van. Oh my God. The van sometimes changes color, but white leaves the other hues by a large margin. Like the white vans that people, you know, associate now? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Hmm. Just one detail was consistent. Homie was always nearby. It might have relieved those of us at Murphy, like Murphy Elementary, to know that kids all over Chicago and in some suburbs thought the same thing. That's weird. Like how it spread in just that one area. Yeah. David Allison said that, I. he said, I remember the kids talking about it. Somebody going around dressed up like Homie the Clown. He was a fifth grader at Murphy, like when that was happening. Mm -hmm. I want to say that he was a rapist or something. And what year was this? This was in... Oh, you said like 91, I think. 91, yeah. Okay. Bob Chang, who I quoted earlier, said, he was supposed to be driving around in a van. Kids were talking about it all the time. A kid in my church, he went to another school in Chicago further north and said that he saw Homie the Clown going by his school. Tassara Redekop, who was at Andrew Jackson Language Academy near the west side, says her classmates were so sure he was real. You had to be careful when you were waiting for your parents to pick you up. Ew. Alyssa Wellick, who went to Rogers Elementary in Rogers Park, recalls that, quote, there wasn't that much communication between the Orthodox kids and the non-Orthodox kids, but I remember that the Orthodox kids were scared of white vans too. It was clear we both heard the same stories. That's really interesting. Yeah. Throughout the search, through through other research, I found that (laughs) grownups... Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Through the search, through other research, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> through other research, I found that grownups at the time also remember Homie. Murphy Elementary second grade teacher Leanne Meredith remembers, quote, a friend of mine was volunteering at Oscar Mayer Elementary and a child saw a white van go by the school playground and started screaming, it's the clown, it's the clown. And I understood that they took everyone back in the school and called the police. Oh quote. my gosh. Yeah. But even at the peak of supposed homie sightings, few schools took action because there was no actual evidence of the clown, just a bunch of kids talking about the clown. Yeah. <laughs> homie didn't leave many traces in the media, and it seems that police didn't want stories to run because they knew there was no physical evidence of the clown, so it would just, like, fuel the fire. I get that. The only media I could find was from, like, a 30-second news spot saying that police were treating Homie the Clown as an urban legend, but I couldn't even find the clip. It was just, like, mentioning that it did run for 30 seconds. Interesting. Two days after one article ran, it um, the headline was, Police Taking Clown Sightings Seriously. So that did give some mixed signals to people, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that fueled the fire. I mean, that was, like, in 2016 when we had that weird clown invasion that we talked about. I know. I think, at the end of the day, these kids... 
just watched someone watched the show and totally took it out of context. I mean, really this. Be. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe it is true. Maybe. That's why it's an urban legend. <laughs> exactly. So this next one I have is a very old and pretty well-known one. So a woman just left work late at night and is driving home. It's your typical night, nice music, just off work, happy to finally be heading home. Mm -hmm. Soon, of course, it starts to rain a little bit. So the woman turns on her wipers and slows her car down just a little. Mm -hmm. Not too long after, she notices headlights approaching behind her. Soon, the person driving the car behind flashes his headlights at her. Knowing what that means in pretty much every area, she opens her window and motions for the driver to go around and pass her. She doesn't want to speed up, especially in the rain. The car behind her doesn't pass, but instead remains behind her. A few minutes later, the car behind her flashes her lights again and comes up really close to the lady's bumper. She is rightfully annoyed now and speeds up a little. Again, this car behind her flashes the lights and even honks at her. Getting worried, the lady pulls over, hoping this will allow the car the space it needs to pass her. But instead of driving past her, the driver also pulls over, right behind the lady's car. (laughs) Obviously panicked, the lady drives off fast, knowing she's only about five minutes from home. She is so close to her house now, and she's pretty sure that she lost the crazy driver following her. Mm -hmm. She is almost at her driveway when she hears tires screeching. She looks behind her and sees the same truck from before. The lady flies into her driveway and runs to her house, leaving all of her stuff in the car. Mm -hmm. When she gets inside, she immediately locks the doors and calls the police, telling them what happened. As she is ending the phone call, she looks out her window and sees the man who had been following her get out of his car. He's holding what appears to be a golf club and is walking slowly up to her car. She is confused and scared, and just as she's about to open the front door, she sees the man who had been following her pull a figure out of the backseat of her car. At that moment, the police arrive and end up putting the intruder from her backseat in handcuffs. They also pull an axe from her (gasps) backseat. Apparently, this man was driving behind her and was able to see into her car. He kept seeing the intruder raising his axe in an attempt to kill the woman. Each time he shone his high beams, the intruder ducked back down behind the seat. (gasps) The man did this the whole way back to the woman's house to make sure she was okay and didn't die. (gasps) Oh, I know. (laughs) But obviously, this isn't the only version of the story. Another follows the same plot with the woman leaving work or just on a drive, of course, at night, when she notices that she needs gas at night while she's alone. Mm -hmm. There is an attendant working at the gas station, and he sees movement in the back of her car and notices that a man is hiding in her backseat. The woman tries to pay with her card at the pump, but the attendant tells her that something is wrong with her card and that she needs to come inside to pay. Mm -hmm. The woman, understandably, is nervous to go inside of a random gas station at night by herself. He's a rough and tough-looking attendant, but she needs the gas, so she goes into the gas station. Mm -hmm. Pretty much, she tells her about the man. They call the cops. The dude in the backseat is caught, and the woman's life is saved by the attendant. Wow. Never judge a book by its cover. Right. But other stories say that she was scared of the attendant and just leaves the gas station without getting gas or really getting out of her car at all. Mm -hmm. In this version, the woman meets an untimely demise as the intruder in her backseat kills her. No. So I heard of this legend forever ago, and I have been checking in my backseat ever since. And my car is small, so, like, the only place you can hide is if you, like, tuck up behind my driver's seat. I check it every time. (laughs) It terrifies me. So I was looking around online for any real-life instances of this. Uh So apparently, the Dublin criminal gang, the Westies, all of this I got online, so that's, like, their actual name, Mm -hmm. said that this is an initiation ceremony for new members. They target women who are driving alone, and they do just what happens in the story. They crawl into the back seat while the woman is getting gas. Once she gets back in her car, they hold her by knife point and do very bad things. And this did happen in Dublin, actually, but luckily the woman was able to get away. Mm. This also happened in Lynchburg. I don't know how many Lynchburgs there are, but there is one in Virginia. Yeah, I was going to say. I think there might be one in Pennsylvania, but who knows? (laughs) Yeah, but so, I mean, it also could have happened in another country. It literally just said Lynchburg. Yeah. 
Um, another incident took place in Chicago, which what? is kind of Chicago. weird that's been in so many of our stories. Um, that one took place in March 2013, and there are many other incidences of things like this happening. It appeared in different movies and shows, like Urban Legends, the film from 1998, an episode of Scream Queens from 2015, and Zombieland from 2009, which warns you to always check in the back seat, among many other shows. Oh my gosh. Its origins, I believe, relate back to the 1960s, and much of the story is believed to come from an incident that occurred in 1964. Ooh. An escaped murderer hid in the backseat of a car, but little did he know that he was in a police detective's car. The detective ended up shooting the man, but it is believed that this is where the legend originated from. So please, check in your backseat before entering your vehicle, check around your vehicle, Always be aware of your surroundings. Be prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try to lock your car while you get gas. Try to get gas during the day or in a well-lit area. Just always be careful and always be aware of your surroundings and always stay safe. Yes. So <sighs> that one always like freaks me out Yeah. because I don't know why. And like, I, okay, so I used to leave for work like super early in the morning when it was dark. And I would get in my car and I'd like look behind my back seat. And then I'd also feel behind my back seat to make sure I didn't miss anything. And my biggest fear was that I was gonna reach behind me and like feel hair or something. Ugh. Oh my god, it's making me like really nervous talking about See, I got scared when the um I think I've talked about this before, but when the shower curtain is closed in the bathroom, oh, yes. I have to open it. Oh, I do too. It's so scary to me. We keep ours open. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it looks so much better when it's closed. Like, yeah. after I take a shower, I'll close it to, like, let it dry and stuff mm-hmm. so it doesn't get moldy and gross. But after that, I'm like, no, I'm just going to keep this open. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. There's that funny meme, though, where it shows, like, a person, and it's, like, me looking behind the curtain for a killer, and then uh-huh. it's, like, a picture of a guy, <laughs> and it's just, like, them staring at each other. It's so funny. It's, like, what do you do if someone is there? I don't know. Oh, because American Horror Story did a part of that, where uh-huh. this guy, he had a fear that, like, someone was behind a shower curtain and was going to kill him, and so he was meeting a psychiatrist for this, like, fear that he had, and the mm-hmm. psychiatrist was, like, okay, you know, that's not real. Like, go home and say this, like, word in the mirror, and you'll see you'll be fine. Well, it turns out that day it just so happened that he had someone who was hiding <gasps> in a shower and killed him. No. I know. It's so what a creepy. Horrible it way is to die. so creepy. <gasps> I cannot. No. Okay. My last urban legend was the scariest one I researched. Oh, um, okay, good. Just because it's so like realistic, it's mm-hmm. something that could happen. Um, so there were a few different variations, but the gist is the same for all of them. So the legend takes place in Paris, France in 1888 during the Great Exposition when thousands of tourists were filling the street of Paris. Okay. A young English woman and her elderly mother were traveling to France from a vacation in India. So they're from England, were in India, and then went to France, and then I'm guessing their plan was to go back to England after. Okay. When they arrived there, they stayed in separate rooms. The mother signed in under room 342. They go upstairs, but soon the elderly woman takes ill and falls into bed. Her daughter rushes to the front desk, and the manager contacts the the hotel doctor, which apparently was a thing. I mean, it was the 1800s, so... I guess that makes more sense. Yeah, so the doctor arrives and has a brief exchange in French with the general manager, who looks very worried. The doctor explains to the girl that her mother is very ill, and the girl must go to the doctor's house, where his wife will present her with a suitable medicine. Okay. Yeah. I'd be like, can you just bring the medicine to I know. Me? I'd be like, why am I going there? Yeah. So this is obviously super sketchy, but that's what happened. So the daughter hurries off with a coachman who apparently takes his time going about the city, weaving in and out of the streets to get to the doctor's house. So he did not take a straight path there. Yeah, he like is disorienting her. Exactly. Yeah. And burning time. Okay. 
Finally, they reached the doctor's house, and this is where two different versions of the story emerge. The first is that the house is deserted, and it's obvious that no one has lived there in years. The second is that the doctor's wife is indeed there and presents the daughter with a small vial of what later is determined to be water. (gasps) Yeah. The daughter returns to the hotel, and this is where it gets really eerie. Okay. She enters the hotel with the medicine, which later was found out to be a vial of water. Mm Mm-hmm. And approaches the front desk receptionist. In one version, the receptionist and the hotel manager are completely different people. Mm -hmm. He looks at her blankly, the receptionist, and says that he has no idea what she's talking about. She sends for the hotel manager, who says the same and doesn't recall anyone matching her mother's description arriving at the hotel, much less getting sick. Oh, no. I know. I'm getting goosebumps. The girl insists on seeing the register, and when she does, she sees someone other than her mother has signed in under room 342. The girl is absolutely frantic at this point. Yeah. Um, and she rushes to the room and opens it. Everything's different. The curtains are a different fabric. The furniture is changed. And even the wallpaper is a different color and pattern. Ew. I know. Oh, I don't like this. <sighs> the girl, feeling that she must be going crazy, insists her mother was staying here and hurries to the English embassy in France. And then after a brief investigation, they are unable to help her and no one believes her story. She has to return home without her mother. Mm. And she starts, like, questioning if she's, like, crazy. Mm-hmm. The solution behind the story... people gaslighted her. I know, for real. They Well, the solution behind the story is that the mother did indeed stay at the hotel, and she did fall ill with a deadly plague that she contracted while in India. Oh. Concerned about the thousands of tourists and revenue that would be lost if word got out that the plague had reached Paris... The hotel manager, police, and hotel doctor concocted a scheme to get the girl out of the hotel, dispose of the mother's body, who had died because she was so ill that it was like she was like so close to death anyways. Oh my god. And then they redecorated the room and signed in new guests, like fake names. Jeez. The urban legend was started to create fear around being abandoned and disbelieved during an emergency, especially in a foreign country when no family is there to assist you. I definitely get that. Yeah. So, like, if you think about it, they took their time getting her to the house, Mm -hmm. which wasn't, like, a real thing. That's why they took all the back roads. Exactly. And that's why they talked, like, frantically in French so that they were, like, talking about the plan in front of her. Oh, my God. Isn't that messed up? That's horrible. I know. So, that's The Vanishing Woman. Oh, my gosh. I've never heard of that one. I know. I hadn't heard of it either. Oh, that one's creepy. It freaked me out. I don't like that one. <laughs> I don't either. I don't, I, you know, it's just scary because when you're in a foreign country, different language, mm-hmm. that's like, that's terrifying. You're so helpless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're so helpless. Like when Corona started, like COVID mm-hmm. and people were in other countries trying to get home. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. There was, I read this article about a girl from our school who was stuck in a different country. She like our went, school? yes. Oh, she went on like a service trip and mm-hmm. she had been there for like a month or two. And then all the flights started getting canceled and she was like begging people to write to the congresswomen oh or my congressmen God. to like get her a plane home. Did she get home? Um, yeah, she did get home, but I was like, wow, that is freaking terrifying. That's terrifying. Yeah. Oh, I don't like that. So <laughs> that was like what was scary when I traveled abroad. I was like, what if something happens at home and I can't get home and like I'm yeah. so far? Yeah, I don't like that. Well, I feel like though we would have i don't know what this girl's situation was but i feel like we would have hopped on the first plane back home yeah. if we knew that like planes were shutting down yeah so oh yeah yeah that's but i mean you know no, you, you never, never know, know what happened yeah you never know all right 
So what I'm going to talk about is actually something I am so interested in. So it's a little bit long, but I tried I to wait. cut things down and I just like, I couldn't. All right. So this story is originally a creepypasta, so sort of like Slenderman, mm-hmm. but over time it has turned into an urban legend. There is much debate online about if these events actually happened or if they are just a creepypasta. John Millican from Dead Central said that this story is, quote, one of the most shocking and impactful urban legends of the internet age. Mm. And I will be talking about the Russian sleep experiment. So let's go back to the 1940s, setting a covert Soviet test facility. Researchers wanted to see what would happen if they kept five subjects awake for 15 days. They would do this by using an experimental gas-based stimulant that would keep these five men awake. So first, who are these men? The five men who were being used in this experiment were political prisoners during World War II who were deemed as enemies of the state. So the men were given a deal. If they were to partake in this experiment, at the end of the 15 days, they would be free men and would no longer be prisoners. Mm. But I guess you can believe that this was a false promise that they were provided. I also remember reading that the point of this experiment was to see if the gas would keep a man awake, hopefully to use on their fighters in the future, so that their men wouldn't have to take breaks from fighting in wars to sleep. I've heard about this. It's something that they would give, like, Israeli fighter jet pilots. I don't know, like, the details, but I've heard of that being used. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that's what I read somewhere, but in this one, I couldn't find that anywhere. So, onto the setup of this experiment. The men would be sealed in a room where this gas would be pumped in. The men were also being monitored for their oxygen intake as the gas was toxic in high concentrations, so the researchers wanted to make sure that the men were not receiving a lethal amount of the gas. Microphones were set up around the room so the researchers could hear what was happening inside. There were also five-inch thick porthole windows that looked into the room so that the researchers could also keep an eye on the men and observe their activities. This was at a time before closed-circuit TVs, so there were no like cameras or anything, mm-hmm. so that's why the researchers had to rely on the windows and microphones. Mm. Just windows, one window, and microphones. Wow. Inside the room, the prisoners had cots to sleep on, though the experiment was testing if the gas could prevent sleep, So, but no bedding was on the cots. Mm-hmm. Books, running water, a toilet, and enough dried food to last all five men for over a month. So they were set. They had it all. Okay. They're going to be in there for 15 days. They had food for a month. They were good. I'm sure at first it was like, okay, this won't be too bad because yeah. they were prisoners. Yeah, exactly. So the researchers did have an intercom in the room to communicate with the men if needed, but they didn't want to use it as all as to not interfere with the experiment. Mm-hmm. The first five days of the experiment went fine. The men didn't really complain or talk about the promise they were given that if they participated, they would be released. But as the first few days progressed, the men began t- talking about increasingly traumatic incidences and events in their life. And at the day four mark, the general tone of their conversations began to take on a much darker aspect. After day five, the men began to complain more. They would talk about what events and circumstances in their lives had led them to this exact moment. They also began to demonstrate severe paranoia. Mm. Soon, the men stopped talking to each other and would whisper into the microphone and the one-way porthole windows. The men also began to believe that they would win over the researchers if they turned in their fellow subjects by revealing secrets. I assume. Yeah. Nine days into the experiment is when the screaming started. Mm. It all started with one man. For three hours straight, he ran around the entire perimeter of the room, screaming at the top of his lungs. Eventually, his voice wore out, but he kept trying to scream. This ended up producing a squeaking sound as he had actually torn and shredded his vocal cords. My God. What is weird, though, is that the other subjects in the room didn't react to this at (gasps) all. They just continued doing their thing of whispering into the microphones. Yep. They, the dude screaming and they did nothing about it. That is until a second man started to scream. While this was going on, two of the non-screaming men calmly ripped pages out of their books, smeared them with feces, and then (gasps) used those papers to cover the porthole the only way for the researchers to see inside the room. 
So now the only thing the researchers have are the microphones. They don't, mm. they can't see it anymore. Once the porthole was completely covered, the screaming immediately stopped, as did the whispering into the microphones. Mm. Three more days passed of complete silence. The researchers kept checking the microphones to make sure they were working, as there was zero sound coming from the room. But they figured they must be working. They also kept checking the oxygen levels in the room. It appeared to be at the right level for five men to still be breathing in the oxygen, meaning all were still alive. Mm -hmm. But what was weird was that oxygen consumption level showed that the men were consuming as as much oxygen as they would be if they were engaging in strenuous activity. On day 14, this was going to be 15 days, Mm -hmm. the researchers did what they said they wouldn't. They used the intercom in the room to try to get any reaction from the men inside. They announced, quote, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. Before they even needed to enter the chamber, they found out the microphones were working when they heard a voice say, quote, we no longer want to be freed. (gasps) (sighs) Arguments and debates broke out among the researchers and the military forces who were actually funding the experiment. They didn't know if they should end the experiment one day early or try to push on to the full 15 days. Mm -hmm. Well, they finally decided that at midnight on the 15th day, they would open the chamber doors. So they were going for the whole experiment. So the 15th day comes, and in order for the researchers to safely enter the room, it was flushed of all the stimulant gas, and fresh air immediately filled the room. Immediately, three voices could be heard in the microphones, desperately begging and pleading for the gas to be turned back on. What? mm Mm-hmm. The chamber door was finally opened, and soldiers were sent in to retrieve the subjects. Immediately upon the opening of the door, all the men inside, including the soldiers, began screaming. The male prisoners were screaming for unknown reasons. The soldiers were screaming at what they were witnessing. Four of the men were still alive. One man was dead. The food rations had been used up to day five, but after that, no food had been dutched. So they hadn't been eating for 10 days. Oh my gosh. Meat from the dead man's thighs and chest had been removed and stuffed down the drain. (gasps) blocking it and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor of the chamber. But the water wasn't clear. It had a red tint to it. All four of the men who were still alive had chunks of flesh and muscle torn from their bodies, (gasps) which it was believed to have been torn by hand. And later, it was determined that most of the injuries were self-inflicted. Oh, my god! So this part is going to get a little graphic, so skip ahead 15 to 30-ish seconds if you don't want to hear. So... Skip, skip, giving you time to grab your phone. Skip, skip. Okay, I'm going to start. In each of the four men, only their hearts, lungs, and diaphragms remained in their bodies. All of the other organs, blood vessels, and muscles had been torn out and laid out in the floor in front of them. Their digestive tracts were still digesting something, which later turned out to be their own flesh Mm -hmm. that they had been consuming over the past days. They had food! I, I know. The soldiers tried to remove the subjects from the chamber, but the men didn't want to be removed. They wanted the gas to be turned back on because they didn't want to fall asleep. The subjects fought so hard to remain in the chamber that they ended up killing quite a few soldiers. One soldier died when one of the subjects ripped out his throat. Another was gravely injured when an artery in his leg was severed by a subject. Five more soldiers lost their lives during the struggle, some by the struggle itself and some by completing suicide a few days later. Mm. Not all of the subjects made it through the struggle either. One had a spleen ruptured and bled out almost immediately. So we have three left. Mm -hmm. The medical doctors tried to save him before he bled out by giving him a sedative, one that was 10 times the normal dose of a morphine derivative, but this sedative had absolutely no effect on the subject. His heart even continued to beat for two full minutes after he had completely bled out, meaning that at this point, his blood was beating in more air than than blood. 
This man continued to struggle for three minutes after his death, the whole time saying, quote, more over and over again, weaker each time until he finally truly died. The final three subjects were finally removed and taken to a medical facility. The two who still had vocal cords kept begging for the gas so they would be able to stay awake. One of the most injured of the three men was taken to a special facility to be taken care of. He was completely immune to the sedative they tried to use to sedate him. He was also able to rip his arms from the leather straps and the soldiers who were holding his arms down. This man clearly didn't want to be put to sleep. Mm -hmm. But once the sedative was finally given and the anesthesia started, the man's eyelids fluttered and then closed. Then his heart stopped. Stopped? uh Uh-huh. His autopsy showed that his blood had triple the normal amount of oxygen. The second subject had been the one who had started screaming first in the chamber. His vocal cords had been shredded. Mm -hmm. He was unable to openly oppose the anesthesia, but instead began violently shaking his head. One doctor asked if he would be okay with them performing the procedure without anesthesia, and the man nodded yes. He did not react once during the entire six-hour procedure, which included having his organs replaced in his body and having his skin replaced over them. Mm. The doctor operating on this subject said that it was medically impossible that he was still alive. A nurse who had been helping stated that whenever her eyes met the subjects, his mouth would turn up into a little smirk. When the doctor finished the operation, the subject began making sounds, but having no vocal cords, the doctor handed him a notepad instead for the subject to communicate with. He wrote only two words, keep cutting. (laughs) (laughs) The other two subjects received received the same surgery, both without anesthesia as well, but the surgeon found it impossible to do the surgery as the two subjects kept laughing uncontrollably. The men were finally given a paralytic, which allowed the surgeon to complete the operation, but the moment that wore off, the men tried to break from their restraints and kept asking for more of the stimulant gas. The researcher tried to get information from the men by asking them why they had injured themselves to such degrees and why they wanted to be given more gas. One man replied with, quote, I must remain awake. After much debate, the men were placed back into the chamber while the researchers and military decided to do with them. One person suggested that the men should be euthanized, but an ex-KGB officer decided instead to do something different. He wanted the chamber to be filled with the gas again, with the three original subjects inside. The researchers strongly protested this decision, but were obviously outruled. This time, though, the men were connected to EEG monitors before the chamber was to be filled with the gas. The men had been restrained at this point, but the moment they learned that the gas would be turned back on, all three men stopped struggling against their restraints. It was clear all of the men were trying to remain awake in anticipation of the gas. One man, whose EEG had been hooked up first, was raising his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly to try to remain awake. But his brainwaves, which were being monitored, startled the researchers. His brainwaves would appear normal, then all of a sudden flatline. It looked like he kept suffering brain death over and over. Oh my gosh. Each time his brainwaves would flatline, they would pop up and function normally. This cycle kept happening until finally his eyes closed right as his head hit the pillow. The brainwaves changed to that of someone experiencing deep sleep, then they flatlined. His heartbeats (gasps) flatlined right along with them. What? There were now only two subjects left. And the only one who still had vocal cords started screaming for him and the other subject to be sealed in the room with the gases now. His brain was showing the same weird pattern between flatlining and being awake as the other man had showed. The commander ordered for the chamber to be sealed up immediately, with the two men and three researchers all inside. But before the chamber door could be closed, one of the researchers drew his gun and shot the commander point-blank between (gasps) the eyes. He then turned the gun on the man whose vocal cords had been shredded and pulled the trigger, killing him immediately. What? In all of this commotion, the other researchers were able to flee the chamber and the room, as well as all of the medical team. So now it's just the man and the subject. The man then turned the gun to the last remaining subject, who was restrained to the chair. Pointing his gun at the man, he said, quote, I won't be locked in here with these things, not with you. What are you? I must know. 
The subject simply smiled and replied, quote, Have you forgotten so easily? We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. And with that, the last researcher, with his gun still pointed at the subject's heart, pulled the trigger. And the last thing he heard the subject say was, so nearly free. (gasps) So that is the Russian sleep experiment. That is so intense. It is so intense and it is so freaking creepy. Yeah. And it is so fascinating. It's fascinating, but oh my God, that's scary. I had a lot of fun researching these urban yeah, legends. Same here. They was very fun. And it was really spooky, really getting us into the Halloween I know. Mood. It felt so, so Halloween-ish. I loved it. I did too. <laughs> and I'm wearing my sweatshirt that says, let's get spooky. So we're getting spooky. Yes, we are. <laughs> we need to make a let's get scary sweatshirt. Oh my gosh. <laughs> If you guys would be interested in that, let us know. That'd yeah. be really fun. We'll make it if you are interested. Um, well, thank you so much for listening. We'll be going back to normal states next month, November, but we just wanted to do something kind of spooky for October. Yeah, we hope you guys loved our specials. Um, and before we tune off, I just wanted to mention Brian Laundry. Oh, yeah. His body was found. Mm-hmm. Um, and- well, remains. Yeah, his remains, his dental records, and I'm sure that we'll find out more as, you know, the police release more mm-hmm. and his, maybe his parents, I know that his parents know more than what they said they so far. They have to be involved somehow. And I hope that if they don't talk soon, then they are prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we are. And then, of course, um, I posted this on my Instagram and there were nine bodies found during the search of Gabby Petito, including her body. So, I mean, I think it's, they, those bodies, who knows if they would have been found. Maybe they would have been found eventually. And it's tragic that like, okay, it's very sad what happened with her, obviously, but it's also very sad that other people who've gone missing didn't get any media coverage because they weren't, you know, they weren't the typical white blonde All person. American. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just really sad. It is very sad. So families got closure, but it shouldn't have taken a huge high profile case for that searching to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's hard to put into words what we mean, but yeah, hopefully you understand. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening and we hope you stay scary. Stay safe.